3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, caretakers, true owners and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to the very first Tuesday breakfast of the decade. (laughs) It's the Roaring Twenties. And we are headed to just as much of a potential crisis as that what happened in the 20s and on that note welcome to tuesday breakfast the time is 7.01 a.m you're in the studio with me zoya and anya um it is a pretty rough day out there this morning so if you are just tuning in the um forecast is it's 18 degrees at the moment there's going to be a high of 29 but most important is there is quite a lot of smoke haze out there it looks like it's going to be one of the worst days in melbourne for pollution yet the aqi rating is 407 that puts it in the hazardous levels so if you have a mask please 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 wear a mask and everybody that's not just people with lung conditions or health conditions everybody please minimize how much time you spend outside today and in particular young children animals because dogs can't wear masks i saw someone walking their dogs this morning and i was just my heart broke it was really sad so please stay inside if you have air conditioning keep it on and put it on to recycle and look after yourselves that is our really big headline of the morning i think and this is i'm an asthmatic and i i've been rather obsessed (laughs) about this i came in today i wore a mask from my door to my car, then from my car to 3CR, yeah. quite literally. Mm. And Anya said that she'd forgotten her mask, and I grabbed a disposable <laughs> one out of my bag and threw it at her. Yeah. It's, I think um, yeah. they're all out of masks as well in the main supply stores, like Bunnings and, and all of those stores. I think there's, there's a lot of shipping that's coming in there. Mm. If you call around, I do know that yeah. I managed to get some from one of those you know, construction tradie shops where they sell ah oh, good health, idea you know yeah. where they sell you know boots and all, mm. all those kinds of things there's a few of those around on you know the big the big industrial bits and streets and stuff like that mm. i called ahead they had some boxes and i do know that a lot of the big ones are repeatedly ordering in boxes because it is all they're selling at the moment oh good and social media as well people are you know quite willingly giving away masks so. everyone's being very helpful mm. and any listeners out there if you don't have a mask or can't get to a mask please dm us because um, I personally have a few masks lying around, so I'm more than happy to try and get some to people if, if you're really struggling. It's, it's really, really important that we look after ourselves today. Mm. Um, so that's our weather warning of the day. We've never had to do this before. No, this is our new normal, unfortunately. Oh, Where yeah. pre- Previously, maybe it was just me joking that Anya and George didn't know how to get ice off their windows. <laughs> now it's True. how do we stay alive. But... Anyway. Okay, anyway, on that note. <laughs> on that note, on that note, onwards and upwards, mm. I suppose. How was our break, Anya? Oh my god, so good. Yeah? Yeah. Um, it was very relaxing. 
That's good. Which is really nice. Mm-hmm. I slept in on Tuesday mornings. Oh, did you feel kind of cheeky? Did you yeah, it was kind of, yeah, I felt like I was cheating, even though we weren't. <laughs> um, but it was great. And But I think the best part of the break was after the break, when we went to see Lizzo last week. Oh, it was amazing. I am still talking about it. Everyone at work now knows I'm obsessed with Lizzo. Oh, my gosh. It was like being at church, wasn't it? It was gorgeous. I mean, her whole shtick is, you know, self-love and empowerment and and all of that. But somehow it's believable when she does it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like often I'm quite cynical about this stuff. But I was watching her and I was like, yes, I do love myself. Yeah. Yes, I am my own soulmate. (laughs) She was she was she was pretty awesome and she's done some really cool stuff as well while she's been in town. Yeah. She went and hung out at the drum youth services mm-hmm. yesterday, which was amazing. Some people of whom we've had on to interview here, so you know, you know they're good. And um yeah, she's, you know, volunteered at food bank and helped pack boxes and stuff like that and she did a whole section on her show talking about the bushfires and was raising money for for um, Victoria Wildlife Service and that kind of thing. So it's it's yeah she's 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 not just pretending when she does this kind of stuff. It feels it feels pretty real, mm. which, which I think is marvelous. Mm. So shall we jump into headlines? We will jump into our headlines. Unfortunately, Chris is unable to join us for the foreseeable future, which is very, very sad. Chris, our, our headlines expert. But we've done, we've done the best job we can, and we've got a few different headlines. So to begin with, for this one, we have a content warning um, on Indigenous deaths in custody, so um, feel free to click away for the next 30 seconds or so minute. Uh, Veronica Nelson, the family of Veronica Nelson, Yorta Yorta woman who died in custody, are demanding answers from the Victorian government. Miss Nelson was being held at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, a maximum security prison in Deer Park. She'd been charged with shoplifting and therefore in breach of an earlier community corrections order. She then represented herself without a lawyer in court on New Year's Eve and was refused bail. Her family were told that she had been placed in an observation room where someone was supposed to check on her every hour. However, there was allegedly no check-up between 4am and 8am, by which point she had been found dead. The family had been informed that they will have to wait three months for a coroner's report to determine the cause of her death. What is known so far is that when Auntie Donna went in to ID her body, she had bruises all over her eyes and ears. Her sister Belinda Atkinson had heard from cellmates that she had been crying out for medical help all night. Miss Atkinson told the age that the justice system has failed her sister and she wants the whole world to know what has happened. She also wishes that Veronica Nelson will be remembered as a talented poet, loving family member and strong curry woman. And that, I mean, you know, we're two weeks into the new year and already we're having to talk about indigenous deaths in custody it is absolutely absolutely unacceptable Mm. and we'll keep updating you on this items really really important item as as time goes on uh next piece of news Mm. so iran protests continue in tehran as anger builds in response to the iranian military shooting down of a commercial airliner which killed 176 people Authorities have used um, tear gas on protesters who have been marching with clots across their mouths and chanting anti-regime slogans such as death to the dictator. 
This comes as a striking contrast to the pro-regime sentiments being expressed by the public following the U.S. assassination of senior Iranian General Qasem Soleimani at the start of the year. The Iranian response of shooting uh, missiles on U.S. forces in Iraq was intended to reinforce their power. However, this was not achieved as in doing so they shot down the passenger jet, which had 82 Iranian passengers on board. Oddly enough, Trump has taken a stance in favour of the protesters, tweeting, Do not kill your protesters. The world is watching. More importantly, the USA is watching. And US sanctions against Iran have pushed the country into a deep recession. So it's a bit of a mess out there. Um, But very heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. 176 people. Yeah. So many different ways. Really, really heartbreaking, scary this. Mm. I just want to quickly talk about the the president of the UQ Young Liberals Club. Um, Mm. This news can be distressing as well. Viewers, there's always help. We'll we'll, um, give you some numbers towards the end of this, um, but you know, tune out for the next 30 seconds or so if you don't want to listen to this. Um, so people might know that there was a video circulating around maybe about two days ago of this UQ Young Liberals Club, people storming into a library and chanting at a drag queen who was doing a story, story time um, show, which was basically reading to a group of kids. Um, they stormed in and they chanted, um, basically accusing her of over-sexualizing um, content for kids. Yesterday, um, news came out that the president of the UQ Young Liberals Club, who was sort of leading the protest, had um, killed himself. He was openly gay. Um, you know, he was openly gay in the media. He's never been shy about that fact. Um, you know, he had campaigned against same-sex marriage, and he had all this um, sort of anti-queer activism things going on. Um, and yesterday, we found out that he had killed himself, uh, which is, you know, which has sent shockwaves through. The community in large, but particularly the queer community. Um, we're not going to make any comments about that, but we just want to say um, this is a distressing time. If people want help, there is always help available. Lifeline is 131114. QLife, um, which is a service specifically for queer people, is 1-800-184-527. Um, my understanding is that these lines are quite chock full um, and very busy at the moment, but there's always other um, services you can contact. Um, there is also 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737 and 732 as well. So, however, so yeah. We have a couple of slightly more light-hearted pieces yeah. to end on. Uh, firstly, we want to celebrate that it seems like Janelle Monet may have come out as non-binary. Oh, amazing! In a tweet um, over the weekend on Twitter, the hashtag I am non-binary was lighting up and Janelle Monet tweeted that hashtag along with a fabulous gift gif from Steven Universe of a non-binary character <laughs> saying, I am not a gender, I am an experience, mm. which I genuinely just want to have like branded across my face. It's <laughs> uh, so that, that's pretty exciting. And in other non-binary news, in Zoya's non-binary corner... <laughs> Jonathan Van Ness of Queer Eye fame, say what you want about Queer Eye, but and it you know, has its ups and downs, but Jonathan Van Ness is just a ray of sunshine. They are writing a children's book about a non-binary guinea pig 
named Peanut, who is determined to chase their dreams in the field of gymnastics. Oh, my God. As, you know, as we know, Jonathan Van Ness loves gymnastics. They love ice dancing and all that kind of thing. So it is inspired by their own childhood guinea pig. Encourages children to not, children to not just be themselves, but to boldly and unapologetically love being themselves. <laughs> That's in the description of the book. And the book is going to be called Peanut Goes for the Gold. Oh and I am really quite excited about that. I think it's a really wonderful step. It's so great when we have jolly media like that, 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 really demonstrates to children the complexities of gender as well as, you know, allow telling them, you know, they can be themselves. So I think that that's is so gorgeous. Um, so coming up next, uh, yeah, well, it is. I, sorry, I got very, very distracted <laughs> just thinking about Peanut, the non-binary guinea pig. I just absolutely love that. So up next we um have some audio for you this show for the you know next um hour or so we are focusing on the bushfires part in large part about responses to the bushfires so at 7:40 we have an interview with Jeremy Poxon the um, spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union talking about the impact of the bushfires on unemployed workers. Following that, we have two academics from um, uh, Monash University, Dr. Deb Parkinson and uh, Liam Leonard, who are going to be talking about um, gendered-based responses and interactions and impacts of the bushfires as well as the impact on the queer community. Both of them are doing research in that space. Before that, we have uh, some audio for you. Um, Anya, do you have the description of it up? Because I have managed to I do. misplace it while talking about peanuts. <laughs> so we've got a 10-minute audio coming up. Um, it's basically the uh, podcast of Let's Talk, um, 98.9. Uh, of Bo Spearham speaking with the CEO of Fire Sticks Alliance, Oliver Costello, from the Bunjalung Nation. Um, this was recorded on the 9th of January, and it's about Fire Sticks Alliance fundraiser campaign called Empower Fire Sticks Practitioners to Restore Cultural Fire. And they also talked a little bit about the fires in New South Wales and Victoria. Very interesting audio. So that's coming up next. In the program this morning, Oliver Costello, no stranger to Let's Talk, has been on quite a few times. Uh, brother, just before going further, um, your mob in your country, please. Yeah, I'm um, Bunjalung. Um, I'm down near Byron Bay, sort of Lismore, Northern River, New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd just like to um, yeah, start by acknowledging country too and paying respects here. Yeah, it's really hard to sort of, you know, uh, see and hear what's going on out there. I've seen some of the devastating impacts of the fire and been talking to mob, you know, reaching out really needs support. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard times, you know, and obviously in my role as the CEO of the Fire Six Alliance, you know, we're getting a lot of um, interest in in the role of cultural burning and stuff. So thanks so much both for having us on and, and hello to all the listeners. Oh, no, all good, brother. You know, um, this, you know, conversation, you know, echoes sort of a conversation that, you know, has been missing for quite some time um, within uh, our country. Um, and in particular, you know, the last 250 years, um, you know, these fires and I guess many fires that we do have um, within our country that burn out of control are a result, you know, of mismanagement and um 
I guess ignoring the knowledge and and uh, the culture cultural practices that um, you know our mob you know have still have you know it's just that you know some people tend not to listen or, or, or pay too much attention but with the deadly work that you're doing um, you know linking in with other mob who have continued their practices of, of, of traditional fire burning um, you know you've created the fire sticks um, organization just really quickly um, I guess my first question would be what is fire sticks and um, what is what is an, uh, an indigenous cultural fire practitioner sure so the fire sticks alliance um, brings together cultural fire practitioners from across the country mainly along the east coast of Australia you know with um, people like Victor Stephenson who's you know really led a lot of this movement um, you know mentoring and training and supporting the growth of this space you know I've sort of been, you know, involved, being mentored by him and other practitioners for the last 10 years and I started that original Fire Sticks project, you know, um, when I was first learning and just saw the potential of and the, the need for this, you know. Well, I sort of had a little bit of knowledge about fire and then when I met Victor, it was like, well, this this is something that needs to be done and I've got someone that can, can help help me achieve those those aspirations that I had. So we incorporated the Fire Sticks Alliance a couple of years ago and we've been running the National Indigenous Fire Workshops Um which is bringing together all those practitioners and also aspiring ones and also people, you know, agencies and landholders that want to learn about cultural fire management and how they can work with local custodians to, you know, support that cultural practice. So cultural burning um, is really about burning for the, the culture of the land and so it's really important that we apply the right fire for country. You know, all different country has different values, different plants, animals and people and they all have their own identity, you know, and so we've got to respect that. We've got to respect that. Own, um, their own sort of cultural identity, you know, and that's why we always pay respect to all the mobs and they, we always work under their cultural leadership. Um, and so when you apply the fire for that country, um, you need to be able to read the country, you need to be able to have a connection with that country, you know, and that cultural authority is really critical because if you put the wrong fire, you know, then you break the law and then the country gets sick. And that's, that's really what we're seeing now, you know, through the absence of cultural burning and the inappropriate fire regimes that have been established through, um, you know, settlement of Australia. We've seen the suppression of fire and now we've seen the reintroduction of fire in parts of the landscape. But in many situations, it's the wrong application of fire. The focus on fuel reduction is, um, you know, notable as it is, you know, obviously, you know, fuel is what's driving a lot of these fires, but you need to look at the indicators for country. You can't, you know, fuel is one of them. You know, and fuel reduction in our cultural burning practice is an outcome because we're burning for the health of the land. Um, and so the plants and animals are the critical part of that story, understanding them. Um, and if you don't, you know, apply the wrong fire, you end up with situations where, you know, you've got people that don't want fire because they're seeing their plants and animals impacted um, or you're seeing fire create more fuel and risk and stuff because it's if you burn the wrong way, you can actually create more risk. People don't often understand that. So... Yeah, for us, it's really important to get the message out there that, you know, cultural burning is burning for the culture of the land. Um, you need to understand the culture of the land to be able to apply the right fire. And so we need local custodians to be empowered as they once were, as their ancestors were, as the cultural authority um, for fire on the ground and be able to practice that. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot more to it. Uh, and I've been on the program before and, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were talking as these fires commenced. I think that was back in August or September, you know, mm. when the fires really kicked off up in the, the tablelands around home. And you, I think you had some up uh, Queensland as well, southeast Queensland. And ever since then, it just hasn't stopped. You know, this is, I'm um, just, yeah, like 
can't believe um, really what's going on. But on the same, uh, on the other hand, it's what we could see would happen. We've been telling people for years, you know, if you don't burn the right way and you don't support us to be able to get the fire on the ground to burn the, the, the right way, then you know, big fires are going to come. You know, the fuel's there, and now we're seeing with this drought and you know a changing climate. Um, you know, you've got all the ingredients for bad fire, you know, and if we'd been applying the good fire, um, we'd be taking out one of those big ingredients, you know, and, and we'd be able to, you know, hopefully would have been able to help um, reduce some of the impacts um, of these fires. And we've seen from some of the burns that we've done, you know, because um, so much of the landscape's burnt, um, we've, you know, been able to luckily get a few burns in here and there um, with the limited resources we've had and, and the bureaucracy and regulation that we're up against. Um, but we've seen those burns hold, you know. So we've, we've done, you know, a few cultural burns around the countryside. And, you know, while we report some of them I've seen um, and some more recent ones I haven't, um, the fire's gone around them, you know, just as we would expect it to. So if we had those fires all across the landscape in mosaics, we'd have a lot more country that would have, um, you know, been um, not impacted by these fires. Mm-hmm. That's 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 amazing. It's 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 like um, you know fighting fire with fire, I guess, um, in a sense. But you know, doing it the smart way, um, mm. you know, you know, through, through those processes. Um, and when you do do that, you know, it's not you know um, an out of control burn. Um, it's not a massive fire. Um, could you sort of talk us through you know uh, the process of the fire and how that mm. works to sort of clear the land? Yeah, yeah. So you know, most of the time when we're doing those real cool, trickly little spot fires, you know, it depends on the vegetation and the community. You know, often when we're in leafy country, you just have these little like you're like little emmy bobbing. You know, just like little bit of fire here, little bit of fire there. They just little burn little circles and connect up, and they go out in the grass. You know, just maybe one or two little spots. We never use drip torches or nothing. You know, you just like. You know, maybe even make the fire with the fire stick and just, you know, throw the fire that you make just on the grass, you know, and then maybe grab another little bit of grass or some bark and then just move him, move him around, you know, a few spots. And this burns, just trickles around, you know. Um, really cool. We always look after the canopy. Um, you know, there's trees and plants and animals and stuff that are there that were, you know, we might uh, rake around some of their big old trees, their scar trees and habitat trees and stuff like that, make sure they're old fellas and that don't get um, burnt down from under, you know, from, from below when they have, you know, maybe a scar or a bit of root that's got rot or something and, you know, a bit exposed, the fire might get into the tree and burn it and knock it over. So, yeah, just, you know, really just like pretty pretty different to what people are seeing on the news, you know, like we're, you know, normally the flame heights, you know, like sometimes it flares up and it might be, you know, a bit over a metre or two, but normally the time, most time it's sort of, you know, sort of waist height or, or lower, just trickling around, sometimes it's only, you know, a couple of inches off the ground, just trickling, you know, and it, it, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing, you know, you want to, you know, people want to be around it, you know, not when the, you know, you've got all these fires, you've got smoke in your eyes, the fire's too hot to get near, and that's what a lot of the hazard reductions look like too, you know, they, they burn too hot, um, and, and when you see these wildfires, how hot they burn, um, you know, yeah, it's not a, it's not a healthy environment, but, um, the cool burn is a healthy environment because, you know, the smoke, you know, it's the light, white, you know, smoke, the good smoke, you know, and uh, you can just walk in and out of the fire, you know, even with no shoes on, you know, you can walk around and, um, yeah, you can have kids there, the old people can be there, you know, it's like, because that's the thing, people don't realise, like, the old people, they didn't have PPE and they didn't have trucks and water, you know, they managed this whole country with fire and because they had knowledge, you know, and 
I don't like I don't often use the word um fight fight and fire fire because we don't fight fire. Old people didn't fight fire. They walk with the fire. You know, like they're firewalkers and they use that knowledge, you know, like knowing the country, knowing and they're doing it over and over again for generations and generations. So young people just learn, oh, that's where Uncle or um Pop light the fire there, you know, and the fire will go out over there and they then they learn all the indicators so you know, knowing oh this is the right time because we burn it another time, it won't go out over there because we can see the you know, the curing, we can see the vegetation, we check the soil, moisture, the colour, the type, you know, all the trees, you know, people know, they have all the knowledge. So to become a cultural fire practitioner, you know, you have to have such a, you know, it's not just about how you light a fire. You need to read in the country. You need to know how to communicate with your elders and your neighbours in the community. You can't be fighting all the time with everyone. You've got to be connected to everyone so you can, like, support, you know, and make sure that you're doing the right thing for country. So it teaches people a sense of um, purpose and ability, um, which is really, I think, important. You know, it's something that we all should take on, that responsibility to care for country, and, you know, like overcome some of the challenges that you might face, you know, because you've got knowledge and you can learn country and you can learn from your elders in your community and really, um, you know, show that responsibility in action. And if you're just tuning in to Let's Talk, my guest on the program this morning is Oliver Costello, uh, the CEO of Fire. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You were just listening to a discussion between Bo Spearham, host of Let's Talk on 98.9 FM, and Oliver Costello, CEO of Fire Sticks Alliance, about fire practitioners and the recent fires in New South Wales and Victoria. We will share a link to this episode if you would like to hear the rest of that discussion. Six years I've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.28. Today we are doing a show that is looking at the bushfires, a lot of it about response to the bushfires um, and climate action more generally. Coming up now, we have a short um, documentary that was actually done by Teen Vogue. 
about uh, Chie Bastida, who is a Mexican indigenous activist in America, climate activist. She's only 17 years old, and she is already one of the leaders of the youth climate action space in the U.S., So this is a short doco that's about her life, why she's an activist, that kind of thing. It is a visual documentary, so there are certain sections of it that kind of go, oh, what's happening here? Um, So just to give you a little bit of background, it's looking at the build-up to the September climate action, um, global climate strike that had 4 million attendees. Um, She was one of the organisers of it. We're going to be listening from her, but uh, we also hear from her mother, who talks in the first couple of minutes. Um, Greta Thunberg also then speaks, and they don't mention it because she's so famous. (laughs) We then hear from some of her friends who are from Fridays for Future, which is the group who strike from school every single Friday and go and protest for climate action. We also hear from... A young person called Juliana, who was one of the lead plaintiffs in Juliana versus the United States, which was a really big class action suit against the U.S. government around climate. Al Gore also speaks. You'll be able to recognize his voice. And we also hear from her dad talking about um, uh, his indigenous culture and the importance of um, the climate to to that. Uh, so, yeah, this is Shia Bastida. And we are having a little bit of internet issues. We'll just go to a computer service now. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie... To be here in Washington when... It is the capital of power and it is where a lot of decisions are made. To be here as an immigrant, as someone who is not from this country, is very counterintuitive, but it's also very representative of what this country is. This country is a country of immigrants. My name is Shia Bastida. I am 17 years old. I am in 12th grade. I'm a senior. I was born in Natlacomulco, Mexico, in 2013-2014. My mom would tell me, you know, it's not raining anymore. Our crops are not growing anymore. Then in 2015, I remember that there was just so much rain. It was like a river running down the street. I feel like, especially in the U.S., people are afraid that refugees are going to come in. By 2050, 148 million people would be displaced by the climate crisis. So the refugee crisis is definitely the human face of the climate crisis because when the climate crisis hits your hometown or hits your country, your city, and you have to leave it, that is when it becomes personal. You don't know that someone could be part of your family or yourself. I couldn't get myself to tell my friends I was going to leave. 
And just the day before I left, that's when I told my best friend. And I just wanted to spend every last like, second with her before I left. Oh my God, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I've been doing activism around environment and climate change since I was really small. It's been in the awareness um, of the family always. It seems so right that you would have naturally gone to that space and taken that as a purpose, as a mission. We will strike September 20. The climate crisis affects us plenty. We will strike September 20. Can you guys raise your hand if you're under 18 here? Just raise your hand. We are here fighting for you guys to vote for our favor. Listen to what we're saying and vote with your heart knowing that we're here standing and fighting for this. We vote next! We vote next! My first impression of Shie was just that she was so powerful and determined and passionate. It didn't really occur to me till kind of the end of the summer that we could like be friends and also work together on this crazy, crazy stuff at the same time. I think all of us are really united by such a genuine care for the people on this planet and taking care of them. And so just that kind of unifying force really brought us all together. Honestly, I think that it's been treated as such kind of like an option to be environmentally aware. That message of urgency was not there. And now that it is, it's like completely changed everything. I feel like a human issue to people. This is about animals. Like on that topic, when we talk about the communities that are affected, it's not only like in the US, but literally all over the world. You know, when we see that the Himalayas are melting and there's so many Bangladeshi refugees and then there's nothing done about it or with Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas and all these people wanting to come into the US and they say, like, if you don't have papers, you're not coming in. Like, what about your humanity? I think what we focus on a lot that is often misconstrued by the media is that the climate movement is not a white movement and it does not have a white face. The media not representing like students of color and indigenous students who have been on the frontline communities and really fighting this fight. Making an effort to say that like these are the voices that need to be uplifted and climate injustice is real. Climate change is thought of this like wildly left-wing liberal issue and until we can change that, until we can pull politics out of it and just put humanity back into it, like we're not going to get where we need to be. Wherever I am, I'm going to do the most I can to show my support to my peers who are fighting for their rights. I feel extremely let down by history, by the decisions of our elders past. When I started out, there was no one. 
it was me banging down the halls of my school. And now we are a collective banging down the halls of Congress. On Friday, we will see the largest mobilization of youth ever. We will march for our lives. We will march for the lives of those generations to come. And what we want them to do is not just talk, but actually take action. And that's what all these branches of government are supposed to do. This energized me. It made me feel happy again after being in that hearing. So thank you. Yeah, we're going to be all right. You're going to save us. I don't want to put a burden on you, but we'll follow you. We'll follow you, and you'll save us. I worry that Shia could be disappointed. Youth think that they can make the decision makers accountable, but it might not quite happen as fast as needed. So I haven't been in school for seven school days, and I'm gonna, not going to be in school the whole next week. So I'm just really worried about what my teachers are going to say, and I'm really worried about how that's going to affect my grades. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what my homework is. The well, first thing I would do... I was telling you, you should just drop out for this year and then go back next year <laughs> when you're done with the climate stuff. Or when it, like, that is not going to end. With my brother, it was... That's amazing. <laughs> Let's go on a little adventure tonight. We're going to go. But we'll see about this. Where are you taking us? Actually very hard because I remember one day my brother comes into my room and he says, Shia, you, you're forgetting about me. My sister's not really in the house, so I don't see her as much. She's always busy doing something. Sometimes I miss her. The cost is really my student life, my family life, my life with my friends. I don't have time, you know, I missed two SATs. I didn't have time to study for my SAT. I haven't finished my college applications. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure sometimes because you have especially- You like a lot of mental breakdowns. <laughs> like every... You think so? <laughs> yeah. I wake up in the morning and you're like crying sometimes. It's just hard when they tell you, like, you are the leaders, you are going to change the world. And it's hard when people say, we need more people like you, and they don't step up to be those people. My mom was afraid that if I continue my activism in such a strong way, I would be deported or denied uh, my visa because I, I am making my voice heard. Being an activist and becoming so public and visible, there is that... Um, tension. If she got deported, it would just show another layer of injustice. Gee, I don't know what to say that you don't already know. This crisis is a threat to the future of humanity. And it's difficult for any of us to wrap our minds around the magnitude and scale and seriousness of this threat. Next, I want to bring to the stage Shia Bastida. What is it like for the families in a region 
that is hit by climate-related drought and weather disruptions of various kinds. Uh, could you share that experience? To live in a world that is burning, melting, and just getting destroyed by hurricanes is not something that is okay. And when that hits your home, that's when it hurts the most. I was taught, you know, the earth takes care of you. You have to take care of the earth. The climate uh, movement didn't start with us. It didn't start 60 years ago when the environmental movement, as we know it today, started. Mm -hmm. The climate movement has always been here, and it's indigenous people protecting the earth because that's their way of life. In our ancestral teachings, we say that we need to give care. We need to give this reciprocity to us, which uh, gives us life. For us, the environmental uh, activism, it was just partial because we don't distinguish the environment and the cultural. In, in our cosmovision, it's biocultural, it's all together. Are you guys excited for Friday? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm just finding places and I'm putting flyers everywhere. The weight of the world often feels like it's on our shoulders because there are so few people who are taking the time to do stuff like this, but we're there to support each other and it, it makes it a lot easier when you see other kids who are doing exactly the same thing as you. When I organize with my friends, we'll just, we're such a big family and we make all of our decisions through consensus and there's no hierarchy in our organizing. My hope for this movement is that we bring hope back and I know that our action is doing that. I'm seeing that all of our civil disobedience and all of our striking is actually giving people hope for us changing the world. Young people will be speaking out and then international students. Yes, we're going to have a land acknowledgement uh, for to open the strike. These are pictures of the strikes happening all over the world. This in Belgium. This is in Solomon Islands. The news of the strike gone everywhere. We saw 1.4 million students uh, marching in Germany alone. What about air pollution and water pollution and plastic pollution? Yo siento un algo que está pasando es un empoderamiento de los jóvenes. No one thought that youth would rise up. All, everyone always says, you know, I thought your generation was all like on their social media and you get offended so easily and you would never like come together. But to see that that is not us, that we are strong and we are together and we are making change is so empowering for all of us. We're here to ensure that we're not the last generation. And that's something that's very interesting because we are Gen Z.
and who chose that name for us. V is the last letter of the alphabet. It represents the end of something. I know my generation didn't pick that name. The adults did. And so we are reframing what Gen Z means and saying it's going to be the start of something new and we're not going to stop until we ourselves are in this halls of power. What do we want? That was a short interview by Teen Vogue about Shia Bastida, a 17-year-old climate activist living in the U.S. who is originally from Mexico and is a First Nations person. A really, really, really amazing, amazing person while you're listening to it. Um, when she was talking about having to miss school and missing SATs, Anya was like, well, that's a baby nerd's worst nightmare. <laughs> and it's, and it, as someone who was a baby nerd, I can absolutely relate to that, but never would have had the bravery and the leadership capability at that age to do something as amazing as what she is doing. This is not true. <laughs> you did not know me when I, I was just wanted to chime in and say I was a mess. Oh. <laughs> so, coming up now, we are going to play a very quick song in honour of Saint Lizzo. <laughs> Um, it is, it is, uh, Anya asked us, I want to play a Lizzo song. What song should I play? Wait, no, I'm going to play Jerome. We had, <laughs> we had no option in this. It was like pretending to be a democracy, but. Anyway. Well, that's the way the world is heading. So. <laughs> I think Lizzo would have something to say about that. Yeah. Okay, okay. Anyway, <laughs> this is Jerome by Lizzo. Come back. 
for you if you want. I never said that you wasn't attractive. Your style and that beard, ooh, don't get me distracted. I'm trying to be patient, and patience takes practice. The fact is, I'm leaving, so just let me. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Anya, and Zoya in front of me. Um, that was Jerome by Lizzo, one of my favorite songs at the moment, which we shall be playing and replaying and replaying. Up next, I'm going to be talking to Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me this morning, guys. Uh, so, Jeremy, can you start by talking about what the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is about? Who, what, what is the organisation for? Yeah, so we're a voluntary-run organisation uh, made up entirely of Social Security recipients, New Star recipients, disability pensioners, etc. And basically we exist to provide uh, free advocacy and support uh, for people, anyone uh, negotiating uh, the social security system. And then we also do... Um, a lot of sort of public campaign work. So we've been very strongly involved uh, in the Raise the Rate campaign, for example, to get new start up to a, to a livable level. We've been involved in the campaign to abolish robo-debt, abolish the cashless uh, debit mm. card, uh, and all sorts of things that we see uh, that basically, uh, you know, limits, uh, you know, the power or limits the ability of, of unemployed people and social security recipients to, to have a good life. Mm. And this cashless debit card issue has come up um, a lot um, over the last few years, um, but also in particular um, around the bushfire um, news. So can you firstly tell us what the cashless debit card is? Yeah, so we've really seen uh, the bushfire crisis, uh, you know, really illuminate some of the the problems uh, with government's authoritarian uh, welfare policies. So uh, the cashless welfare card, uh, which has several trial sites uh, around Australia, basically works to forcibly restrict uh, 80% of uh, a Social Security recipients' uh, income, where 80% of, of what they get uh, from Centrelink, whether whether they're on Newstart or another or another payment, is kind of is kind of quarantined uh, to a card that can only be used uh, in in certain places in in certain supermarkets. So. Uh, you know, as we know, the, a lot of the trial sites are in country towns that have cash economies, and that's made it very difficult for people to, you know, go to their go to their local market uh, and places that don't actually accept the card. Um, you know, the, the card can't be used on on cheaper cheaper 
bunch of websites like you know like Gumtree. You can't use the card mm. uh, on on eBay. So it's basically fueled you know by this logic that uh, you know the cause of of people's poverty is their inability to <laughs> monitor and and spend uh, and control their own income, which we know is is patently patently untrue. And and data continues to emerge um, you know that uh, actually putting low-income people on this cashless card is, is causing a lot of uh, causing a lot more stress. It's causing people to flee, poor people to flee uh, trial sites. But we really saw you know a dangerous new dimension to the card um, during this sort of bushfire season, where, for example, uh, over over New Year's in Seduna, uh, which is the very first trial site, um, introduced um, you know where citizens lost power, right, mm-hmm. um, because of because of the bushfire crisis. And that was an incredibly dangerous and scary uh, time uh, for for card recipients, uh, because once the power once the power goes out, they have no way uh, to access money. They can't go to the bank and, and draw out, you know, enough cash uh, to tide them over. Right, uh, their income is, is completely tied uh, to this card, and if receivers are down, you know, they have no ability um, to to access cash in in an, in an absolute crisis. Uh, when the power goes out, so this is you know what you know what we've what we've seen. Um, you know this is an incredibly vulnerable population of people, the population of people that you know, we believe the government is making um, specifically uh, in, intently uh, vulnerable by making them rely uh, on these on these primitive mm-hmm. welfare welfare services that even when they do work and functioning make it difficult to survive. Um, but but when things like this happen, when when there, when there's a crisis. Um, you know, these communities are, are even less resilient. Mm. And, I mean, I've, I haven't... I was doing a bit of research on this topic yesterday, and there doesn't seem to be any statistics or data explaining how successful the program is or anything like that. Everything seems to be anecdotal um, evidence that, you know, the mayor of this city said it's going great, or, you know, that's the only sort of evidence that they have. Is that right? That is that, that is quite right. Uh, you know, group groups like ours, where, you know, we've been... Traveling to traveling to these sites um, to talk to people to do our own qualitative and, and quantitative surveys and data and the groups like ours who have done that you know we're really there's still more work and research to be done but we're really putting together a picture uh, that you know that this card isn't you know somehow magically somehow magically restricting people's income forcibly in this way surprise surprise isn't leading them into work and and mm. and, and a better life um, but as you sort of hint at that. You know what we're finding is often contradictory um, to, to sort of the the the, the very uh, glossy and positive data uh, you know that the government uh, likes to likes to pump out, which is as as you say in conjunction with uh, the the leaders um, in in that town who who sort of front the media uh, and say that you know everything here is is hunky dory because I talked to one guy once. Mm, yeah, <laughs> a few weeks ago, who I can anecdotally uh, tell you is is having a good time, and you know, not to say that you know I've been to I've been to trial sites, <laughs> yeah. I've talked to people. There is there is nuance in it. Yeah, um, you know, you will you will find people who who like the stress taken away that the card sort of provides uh, provides you, and they don't have to actively manage their income, and that mm-hmm. can help people, especially through a crisis. Um, but the you know consensus. Um, at least anecdotal, you know, data that that we receive is even even you know, even from people who not necessarily are against the card, but 
mm. uh, you know, see some value in it. It's it's the fact that it's mandatory. It's the fact that it's it's a bit patronising, isn't it? Too. It's the fact that it's you know top down and forced mm. on populations of people rather than you know so you know as, as an immediate measure we you know where and a lot of and a lot of people on the card are calling for it to be reformed into a more of your voluntary like buy-in sort of system where mm. if you are experiencing crisis you, you, know, you can apply to be you can apply to be on it and um, you know just the fact that it automatically deducts your rent and, and and does all those sort of things you know can be useful for some people in a crisis but yet yeah, the fact that rather than actually address the cause of spending poverty um, and inequality in these in these communities the government has sort of carte blanche uh, yeah. you know forcibly restrict the income of poor populations. Yeah, I, I mean, I was reading this um, story yesterday, which, um, you know, about this woman who was trying to buy a stethoscope for her nursing placement, and she couldn't buy it from a, a cheap um, supply store because they also sold hand sanitizer, and that had too much of an alcohol content, um, and therefore she was restricted from doing that. Um, right. And I guess it's sort of the parameters that are placed um, around the card that seems to be more of an issue than anything else, a bit patronising and condescending that this would then minimise harm in some way. Um, and and yeah. horribly stigmatising as well. Mm. The other other dimension we hear, it's, it's you know you 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 talk to people, um, and you know they you, know, you have to you have to whip that that card out of that the place mm. that that accepts it and you know it has its own design and yeah. everyone knows what it is. And, and if it gets uh, rejected, you know, you, then yeah. And it gets re- rejected quite often. That's, that's the other yeah. thing. That there are so many faults um, in in the card that we hear, and it does take people often multiple times to even get it get it accepted. You know, I've heard like the terms used to describe the card um, in town, like the povo card or the mm-hmm. drugger card. So it, co- it comes with a, you know a hell of a lot of a lot of stigma, and it mm-hmm. creates social division in a, in a small mm-hmm. country town. Like you know, for example, when I was in Seduna and. You know, their big thing um, every year is the Oyster Festival, and it's a cash-only affair. Of course, So it yeah. sort of literally gets to that point where, you know, uh, you know the thousand or whatever people uh, off the card, uh, you know, that they're, they're free to go and, and, and spend their income, whereas the poorest citizens are basically locked out of, you know, a, a fundamental yeah. cultural event. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to keep talking about this, but specifically with regards to the people trapped in the bushfire areas and now that they're struggling to use this card, um, what are the next steps? What can we do? How can we help them? Um, how can they help themselves? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously we need to keep, you know, we need to keep campaigning um, against uh, the cashless card, against these these trial sites, all, all this vulnerability uh, will just continue and you know, thankfully, um, you know, with 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 the Greens um, in office and and Labor finally uh, are resisting um, future rollouts of of trial sites. That's that's all positive. Um, you know, there is our campaign that people can can get involved with there if they want to go to unemployedworkersunion.com.au and get in, get involved. We'd really appreciate it. Um, you know, there's um, in 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 the immediate term. You know, it's just so. Um, you know, people, um, people can, can survive, you know, all, all the usual, you know, food charity, um, mm-hmm. you know, food charity options, um, in those, in those areas, uh, you know, really, really crucial to, to donate to and, and support as well. But yeah, you know, overwhelmingly, I think, you know, this whole, you know, bushfire season is hopefully another shot, um, in the arm, uh, for people to really wake up and understand the real consequences of, you know, what welfare policy that makes people this vulnerable. 
um, are and, and can do. And we've seen this through, you know, the, the cashless card. You know, we've seen this through, um, you know, the, the brutal mutual obligations. <laughs> government, you know, you know, puts people through and was putting people through until it recently decided to suspend them for mm. unemployed workers in, in bushfire affected areas who literally couldn't attend a Centrelink and were, mm. were getting punished for it. So, um, you know, broadly, um, you know, across across the spectrum, we all need to, you know, we all need to fight to, you know, for proper investment mm. um, in in low income uh, low income communities because ultimately that's the only thing that'll that'll make them, you know, resilient. Uh, to, to climate change and, and crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I guess this is one example where we see all the intersections coming together. And um, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, guys. So the case that we are... 3CR is about community. And we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. to summer programming on 3CR. To find out more about our summer specials, go to 3cr.org.au. You just heard from Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. The AUWU Advocacy Hotline can be reached on 1800 289 848. They've also got an Unemployed Workers' Rights Guide, which might answer your questions or concerns, but if it doesn't, then please call this number. It's 1800 289 848. They're also online um, with unemployedworkersunion.com, or you can just um, Google AUWU and they pop up quite easily. Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win. All details on our website settingsun.com.au The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Ruby Jones singing Make It Out. Full disclosure, Ruby Jones is one of my good friends, and she is fabulous. She recently had a gig where they raised money for the Lakes Entrance CFA. There are a lot of artists out there who are doing some very, very great work raising money for the bushfires, which unfortunately is quite ironic when you consider that the federal government cut funding to the arts and now the arts are funding things that the federal government should be funding. It's a delightfully ironic Urubos. Uh <laughs> Of course I said Urubos at 8.08 on a Tuesday morning. Gosh. Um, did, did, we, did we talk about uh, um, uh, ner- the nerds' worst nightmares? Uh, um, early on in the show, yes, I am absolutely a nerd. So anyway, moving on, we have a couple of people in the studio. I always get really, really excited when we have people in the studio. It always makes for a fantastic interview. Not just that, but it's two people that we are interviewing at the same time. <laughs> so we get to have a wonderful conversation and test my interviewing skills. So that's going to be good. So in the studio, we have um, two delightful academics from Monash University, Dr. Deborah Parkinson and Liam Leonard. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's lovely to have you in today. Um, why don't we just start with some introductions? So, Deb, how about you first? Why don't you let me know who you are and why did I let you in the room? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, um, well, as you mentioned, I'm a researcher with Monash University. It's actually, you know, called Monash University Disaster Resilience Initiative. Um, I also work for two women's health services, Women's Health in the North in Thornbury and Goulburn Northeast in Wangaratta. Mm. Um, so for the last 10 years, my focus has been not, not solely, but predominantly um, gender and disasters and increased family violence uh, after bushfires and other disasters. Mm. Uh, and I'm Liam Leonard. I was previously director of Gay and Lesbian Health Victoria at La Trobe University, uh, which is now Rainbow Health Victoria. So I helped set up Safe Schools, the Rainbow Tick program, and I ran national research projects on LGBTIQ people. Um, I left that job a year ago, and I'm now trying to set myself up as a social policy consultant. And Deb and I work together on a research project looking at LGBTI people's experiences in disaster and it was the lead researcher on that project. Fantastic. So both of you, that was a really great introduction. That was very, very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Got two extremely impressive people in the room. Well, there must be four of us. (laughs) (laughs) Looking looking behind yourselves, like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So we're going to have a chat today, um, maybe sort of slightly and generally around the interrelationship between gender and sexual identity sexual identity and disasters, but also more specifically about the bushfires at the moment and the responses to it and the interaction, um, the, um, the experiences of um, women, uh, trans people, non-binary people, queer people in general um, with the bushfires. So, um, Deb, I'll start with you. Um, so your research looks into natural disasters and gender. How do natural disasters impact women differently, both at, I guess, a psychological and also at a systemic level? Yeah, there's actually a, a, quite a number of ways that it affects women differently. Um, for example, um, 
what happens is that there's an expectation of women to keep their partners and children and elderly relatives or even neighbours to keep them safe. So a woman who's kind of in that middle middle age is expected to do that, even in circumstances like Black Saturday or the current bushfires. Um, we have a notion of what heroism is, and uh, when we heard women talk about getting those children out, you know, with fires on both sides of the road, cars, you know, boiling, um, picking up people on the sides of the road, that was heroism, but it's never acknowledged as that. Instead, we think of heroism as, you know, men in suits and getting the badges pinned on. Um, so that's one of them. Another um, is that women's escape is hampered by a lack of autonomy, and that comes from their socially constructed role. Um, even though we think things are more gender equal, they're actually not. And there's a couple of ways you can tell, you know, clearly who gets uh, with children, you know, whose surname do they get? When people hop into the driver's seat, it's usually the man. Um, I, I get things emailed to my male partner or posted to him when it's been me who's actually instituted things, even bank accounts and things. Um, so there's this notion of man as the head of the household. And uh, so women, are they don't have that autonomy to get in the car and drive away necessarily. The other thing is that they don't want to leave their male partner in danger. And I am talking about this heterosexual couple, like, like that notion of a heterosexual couple, because that's where you've got the socially constructed male role and socially constructed female without research with LGBTIQA plus people, that didn't come up. It's very much situated in that heterosexual couple. Um, that's just a couple of ways. Um, will I leave the rest for a bit? <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that women engage in acts of heroism when things come to natural, when it comes to natural disasters quite often, but the way in which it's couched, the way in which it's framed is more business as usual. Mm. You're doing the act of a mother. That's just what you're expected to do. You're not going above and beyond. It's just what you do. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So even though women... Uh, did actually extraordinary feats, you know, in, in saving their children, you know, in the height of the fire, usually leaving late because they've attempted to persuade the man or elderly relatives to get into the car with them. Um, so that's not recognised. But, of course, after the fires too, um, the same thing happens where women are expected to put their own needs last. So men are often suffering. This is what we heard from our research with men, that after the fires, they felt their identity of a man um, was really questioned. They felt that they hadn't lived up to this notion of hero, which is why the concept is so damaging to mm. men. It really sets men up for failure, talking about men as heroes. Um, so women were expected uh, by family to be a better wife, to give him some time because he's really a good guy. He's traumatised by the fire. He was a hero in the fires. Um, police after Black Saturday were not following their own code of conduct and they were saying, look, we know he's a really good man. Um, so none of that was helpful to either the women, the children or the man ultimately. 
Are you talking here about, um, I know that you, your research mm. indicates that there's a rise in family violence following bushfires. Is, is that kind of what you're alluding to right now in terms of police and code of conduct? Yes, that's right. The other thing that happens is it was quite unusual for police to actually go because women were silenced well and truly before they called the police. Um, so at each stage, people were, even, you know, the notion of a cohesive community, women felt that they were betraying their community by saying that, that this was happening in their home. There's a, a lot of pressure to be, you know, really strong and resilient rather than actually recognising people's fears and losses, which we need to do first. Mm. Absolutely. I think it sounds like there's, there's so much complexity in, in the follow-up to natural disasters beyond just the immediate the immediate yeah. needs and, and, and issues. Um, and talking about the impact of natural disasters, Liam, uh, specifically around the queer community, how do natural disasters impact queer people differently, both psychologically and or systemically? Well, I should say talk about the little bit about the research mm. that Deb led. Oh, yeah, um, the, Only because that's where we're going to draw <laughs> some of these... Um, not answers from some of the discussion. The research was looking at LGBTI, I'll call, I'll say queer people just mm. as an abbreviation of LGBTIQ+, but um, queer people's experiences of living through disaster. So we interviewed and had a questionnaire for a small number of people. We also were the first research project to look at um, the degree to which emergency management personnel knew about and addressed the needs of LGBTIQ queer people. So it was a, a two-pronged research project. There have been some research done, as I say, on LGBTI, LGBTIQ plus people's experience, but virtually none looking at how well the emergency sector responded and what, you know, frontline personnel and managers knew about queer people. Um, and that's just an interesting uh, dual focus, yeah. if you like. So queer people's experiences, for instance, for trans and gender diverse people, there were all the, the standard issues around access to appropriate services, from toilets through to access to medication if they were in a relief centre and not being able to access. Uh, for many queer people, there were fears not just around emergency service personnel, but other people in a relief centre. So same-sex couples are holding hands, being abused by other clients, um, people going to relief centres who had a same-sex partner particularly for lesbian couples who we talked about and interviewed uh, and this is true in the national and international research who may be separated one goes to one relief centre another to another they're not out in their local community and they have to make those complicated decisions about whether or not they out themselves with the longer term consequences of outing yourself in a community where you weren't known to be same sex attracted mm -hmm. and where you'll be dealing with those people for the next year, two years or three years. So one of the things that comes out of that research is for queer people who are under pressure in their everyday lives, and we all know that, just the unrelenting nature of heterosexism and discrimination that you deal with, yep. that all ratchets up dramatically under... Uh, emergency conditions. Mm. So we know that for minority populations, but particularly for queer people, all of those fears about self-censorship, about who can you tell, who can't you tell, your loss of privacy in letting people know when you haven't previously, you're under intense pressure in an emergency situation and doing that calculus just ratchets up. So all of those decisions about do I tell someone that my same-sex partner's gone to a different centre, do I make a formal complaint about... Um, gender non-appropriate toilets, you know, all of that just ratchets up. So mm. we, we discovered that for queer people under emergency conditions, just that background level gets to a level and it affects their psychological health, their mental health, their physical health. It has longer-term obvious consequences. Um, 
for people. So part of the research was looking at how we can inform emergency management services to actually build that sort of knowingness into their practice, into mm. their policies, so that queer people don't have to double-guess when they're going up to a service. They know that service has considered them already. They know that they can talk to personnel confidently and that their privacy would be maintained. All of those fairly sensible things that might apply to any service, but as I say, um, absolutely important under emergency conditions when people are just more vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that, that, that you don't think about, and I guess... Uh, by addressing some of these issues, you're also addressing issues for other more marginalised members of the community as well who might have other access or medical mm. needs. And, and, you know, it's, it's not just about queer people needing access to these, to these spaces or these, or these facilities or these services. This, this can impact people with, with a bunch of other different um, intersections as well. So it sounds like some really important work. Looking at these bushfires specifically, and I know that they've only been going on for you know, a relatively short space of time. So whether or not you've done any work around this yet, because we're still you know, in the midst of it, has there been um, anything specifically around these bushfires that, um, that are impacting women or queer people that, that, that you can talk about, or even any examples that you've come across where the um, appropriate action, the appropriate structures are actually being put in place. I know it may be too early to say so. Yeah, um, I think it is um, probably a bit early for us mm. to talk about it yet, but what we're doing is really trying to approach all the key agencies to make sure that they understand what we learned from the research post-Black Saturday um, so that they, they being uh, recovery workers and emergency sector workers and all of us in the community, so we understand the damage we do when we make assumptions, um, even assumptions like, aren't you over it yet? You mm. know, um, so we, we do need to understand that the impacts of disaster are really severe and long lasting. And some people just said to us, I don't think there's any getting over it. Um, and things, you know, like uh, smelling smoke in the air, 50 years on, you know, for one woman, put her right back into wow. that situation. Um, we developed some gender and emergency management guidelines and we're really trying to get government to take them on. When you talked about other marginalised groups, it's not that easy, I mean, it's not that hard and it's not expensive to get a diversity of voices in the planning for disasters, um, then in the recovery, the reconstruction and, um, you know, to, to get people around the table who can say, well, hang on a sec, have you considered X, Y and Z in mm -hmm. relation to marginalised groups? And a good start to that could be to have specialists in gender, in family violence, LGBTI specialists like Liam, and of course people from other marginalised communities. One of the things that's come out of the, the research project is we developed a three-hour training package which we've trialled and it's called Under Pressure and it's looking at LGBTIQ plus people's experiences and we have delivered that into emergency sector or into emergency um, service organisations um, and it deals exactly with these sort of questions. What are the assumptions that you make? What are the things you don't know? Uh, what would be inclusive practice uh, under emergency situations for... in, in the case of the unit that I do for queer people um, and there's an opportunity I mean it's terrible to think of bushfires as an opportunity but it, it 
it, it is such a topic for discussion at the moment that hopefully some of the issues around the the appropriateness of a diverse response will will find its way back into that discussion. Mm. Often these issues get put down as really not the the made they're the soft issues if you like a heavily gendered way of thinking about issues. Whereas fighting fires that's the but no this is also the time mm. to look at precisely those groups who whose experiences are less than they should be in terms of service provision. Yeah simply by virtue of being part of marginal and minority groups. So we have the opportunity to promote the training, opportunity to look at the guidelines to make sure that agencies, in, in as they now look at what they can do to better plan and to improve their services, actually include issues around diversity as well as their response to the pointy things like climate change and, you know, the drying of the bush and all of the, the, the soft issues, for want of a better term, don't get marginalised yet again mm-hmm. uh, and seen as, well, we'll do that later. We've got the real issues to address at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's how minority um, groups, that's how women are just endlessly treated in emergencies. They're still with the real issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are minor. And you think, no, no, these are actually major issues mm-hmm. and this is mm-hmm. the time to talk about them, not to delay until six months um, So we're hoping that some of these discussions, some of the interviews um, will look at these issues as being absolutely part of an appropriate response. Absolutely. And and, and speaking about appropriate responses, so you mentioned that um, inclusive practice training is really, really important. So that's a lot to do, obviously, with behaviour and the way in which emergency management personnel and police and and then those kinds of systems interact with marginalised groups. is there what what other areas are really important when it comes to this response? Um, you know, as you know, not 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 just um, language and, and behaviour and, and, and response of people. Are there any other um, areas that you've identified as important? Um, it could be, <coughs> sorry, for example, communication. Um, so not just having, you know, how you see people who are giving information about the fires and about what community could should do, and usually it's a group of men in uniform doing that. Um, what, what happens in disasters is it sets gender relations back 50 years. You know, people look for comfort. They look to strong figures of, of authority, and uh, we kind of go back to that. So really we need diverse voices having that authority, and that includes LGBTI people. Um, and people with accents as well. Um, so I think that's a really easy uh, yet very important thing to do. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and in terms of, you know, you, talk, you said that there's a gen- gender practice. Is it, was, it, was it called a, the practice guidelines? I'm yes, gender and emergency management guidelines. Gender and emergency <laughs> management guidelines. Oh. I'm sorry, at this, at this time of the morning, my, my memory <laughs> just kind of, I don't even, know, don't even know my own name. Like, who are you? Where am I? I don't know. The yep. gender and emergency management guidelines. Um, I know that, so that's one place where people can learn more about what you do. But um, where else can people learn more about this space, yeah. the work that you do? Yeah, um, I would um, suggest our website, which is www.genderanddisaster.com.au. There's a wealth of resources, including video of Liam. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the other things that I worked on at um, GLHV, which is now Rainbow Health Victoria, is the Rainbow Tick. And that's a program for service accreditation for services to show Mm. that they're LGBTIQ plus inclusive. Um, And going back to your question about what else can you do, the Rainbow Tick is a way in which 
Uh, agencies have to look at all their practices and procedures to get the ticket service accreditation and services that get it um, will show that at every point in service provision from training through to um, taking client data to that they are LGBTIQ plus inclusive and so if there was some pressure put on uh, emergency services to consider going for the tick, um, it usually takes organisations a year, a year and a half because it's extensive and exhaustive. Um, and I think that's something else. And that's systemic mm. change. That's not looking at individual behaviour. Yeah. That's changing the culture and practices of organisations. And once you set that, that sets the tone for anybody coming in, whether they be a client or a staff member or a volunteer, which is incredibly important in the emergency sector. Mm. All those people need to... Uh, conform and understand and if they don't they're held to account not the LGBTIQ plus person yeah um, so the rainbow tick is another way in rainbow health Victoria's site you can go to that to get access to what that is and what that involves fantastic um Dr Deb Parkinson and Liam Leonard from Monash University thank you so much for coming in to talk about gendered and um queer focused responses to disaster relief I think it's something that's really important and we don't think about those systemic issues and and the ways that these things can differently impact marginalized communities enough so i really appreciate it thank you thank you so much thank you um that is all we have time for today on the show um it has been a great morning it's been really really wonderful to be back online after a couple of weeks i really hope that the next decade of tuesday breakfast is going to be as marvelous as the previous decade who knows maybe i'll still be here in 10 years time you'll be sick of me and there'll be no one listening it'll just be me sitting here screaming into the void as as it's all i don't know if anyone could hear that because her mic wasn't on but anya literally went it's already happening well it's already happening because someone's mic isn't on so <laughs> So on the show today, we just spoke with um, Dr. Deb Parkinson and Liam Leonard from Monash University about responses to natural disasters and its interrelationship with gender and the queer community. Previous to that, we spoke to Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Union, Australian Unemployed Workers Union about the cashless welfare card and um, how uh, it's impacting communities affected by bushfires as well as communities more broadly. And before that, we heard about... Um, First Nations responses to the bushfires, um, as well as uh, C.A. Bastida, a 17-year-old climate activist. That's all we have time for today, but up next we have Accents of Women.